Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 18. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, greetings again, church. I am glad you're here. And I don't often start like this, but I'm going to, yeah, I'm leaving a trail of coffee cups there. Don't always start like this, but I do believe that literally every time I'm up here, every time someone's up here, uh, we pray before we come up that God would speak through us. And I'm going to be a little transparent. I had a friend with a really difficult series of circumstances unfold last night. So I am a touch distracted. And so this happens every week behind the white wall, but this morning it's going to happen all together. I'm going to pray and ask God to help me be super clear and for us to hear what he has to say in his word. All right. So let's pray together and then we'll dive in. But Lord, I do just take a deep breath here and acknowledge that we're dependent on you and on your word and that you have something good to say to us this morning. You do every time we open your word. And so would you calm me and bring me peace and focus? Would you calm all of us, Lord, not knowing all the stories in this room, but just knowing how life works and that people are coming from all kinds of places? Would you calm us together and give us focus? And would we here for these next few precious moments be able to hear the message that you've prepared for us thousands of years ago uh, to hear and receive this morning, to encourage us wherever we are. Lord, I trust that that's what's about to happen because it's what you do every time we get together around your word. So we're trusting you. Uh, we're reliant on you in this moment. And it's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, growing up, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, which was really easy to do. They lived just down the road, about 11 minutes away. And so every Saturday afternoon, every Sunday afternoon, my family was over there for lunch. And then, gosh, most days in the summer, I was there playing in the front yard, swimming in the backyard, messing around on the piano after that. And the highlight of the day was waiting until Nina went into her bedroom to watch the soap operas and sneaking a can of diet, caffeine-free Coca-Cola from the fr I know, it's terrible. <laughs> you just didn't know as a kid what you were missing out on, right? Uh, it's pretty gross, actually, but it was great then, right? It's like, I finally found this can, and I thought I was getting away with murder as a child, uh, grabbing one of these cans. It took me a little time to realize, okay, you know, she, someone must have been restocking the fridge. I guess I wasn't really sneaking them away. But, you know, you get that later. You're like, man, no one's going to know I have this. So I love, love, love being with my grandma. I have great memories of that time together with her. Uh, but I can remember a distinct moment when my understanding of my grandmother changed. 
And there's this very particular moment when I learned something about her that I never knew before. Um, I learned when I was a teenager that my grandma, when she was 23, lost her father, that he died tragically on Christmas Eve. I just hadn't known that until I was a teenager, and it was uh, difficult. I mean, as you can imagine, hearing her talk about what that did to her family and how that shaped things growing up and the changes that it meant for her and for her mother and, you know, as it relates to income and security and all kinds of things. I mean, it was just this, this critical, critical moment in her life as a young person that I didn't know about until I had reached my teenage years. And when I learned that about Nina... <laughs> Something changed in the way that I understood her. When I got that fuller picture of who she is, uh, something changed in the way that I approached her. Knowing that about her changed me. And I think that's how it works, isn't it? Learning something about another's history adjusts the way we see them in a present, or learning something about someone's story, getting a glimpse into their world, hearing more about their lives and their reality, it changes us. It changes how we understand them. It changes how we respond to them. That is just the way it works. And this morning, as we dive into the ancient text that we're about to explore, we're going to be presented with personal details about God. And as we'll see in a few moments, the prophet Isaiah, who gave us the text we're engaging this morning, I believe he offers us these glimpses into God's world, these glimpses into who God is, so that it might change the way we respond to God. Um, to put it another way, Isaiah gives us personal details about God to adjust our response to God. What we're about to discover or rediscover about who God is and what God is is remarkably important because a time is coming when someone is going to invite you to trust God. Someone's going to invite you to trust God with a particular difficulty or a specific relationship or a really difficult challenge, but you will be worn out and you will be exhausted. You will feel like you have nothing left, like you're in way over your head. You'll be facing something that seems impossible, and you'll be ready to throw in the towel. You'll have waited and waited and waiting, and nothing will have changed. You'll have prayed and prayed, and things will be the same. You'll have hoped and hoped, and all hope will feel lost, and that time is coming, or perhaps you're there right now, and when that happens, someone is going to invite you to trust God in the midst of a difficult circumstances. And when that happens, you'll find yourself in a situation quite similar to the situation experienced by the people to whom Isaiah was addressing this morning. Indeed, Isaiah's original audience found themselves in a place of difficult waiting. And it was into that experience that Isaiah spoke these words of encouragement. It was precisely at that moment that Isaiah offered just a, a bold image of who God is designed to change our response and anchor our faith in God. And so it's my prayer that when those moments come in your life, or if you're in one even now, that you will hear Isaiah's words as though they're spoken directly to you. So if you haven't already, will you join me now in Isaiah chapter 40? Isaiah 40, it's where we're diving in uh, this morning. And before we start, let me just remind us of where we've been this Christmas season. We've been studying the book of Isaiah in a series that we've titled Coming Home. 
uh, coming home. So we've gotten glimpses through this book of Isaiah, this prophetic book about the encouragement and hope and faith and peace that is ours. Um, and we've come to recognize that those things that God promised then to people then are available to us here now today. Uh, but let me be the first to admit that our study of Isaiah has been a little convoluted. Uh, we haven't really gone about it the way we normally do things at Christ's community. So to be specific, last week, Gabe spoke in Isaiah 41. This morning, I will be doing the second half of Isaiah 40, and next week, we'll do the first half of Isaiah 40. Now, again, this isn't how we usually do things around here. Well, why is that happening? Because we have a little bit of a teaching rotation going on right now. So some of you might have been wondering, where is Gabe today? Well, Gabe is giving the message that he gave last week here, that Isaiah 41 message, at our Brookside campus. And next week, he'll be doing it at our Leewood campus. And there will be some other rotations going on. Why all this rotating? Well, we realize that if we truly are one church in five locations, it makes sense that some of our teachers that usually talk to particular pockets of our family should get to rotate around a bit. So Gabe's on the circuit, and you are all stuck with me. Uh, but in the meantime, I promise to be great. So we, we've been a little out of order. We don't usually do that. This is, this is not our norm. But the rest of the sermons we'll be doing from Isaiah are all from the second half of the book of Isaiah. And the second half of the book of Isaiah are all promises of hope written to God's people after exile. So in the first half of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah talks about this day that's coming for Israel because they've been disobedient to God, because they've not been following him, where there will be swift judgment and penalty for their actions. And that happens, and it's called exile. That's like the first 39 chapters of the book. The second half of the book of Isaiah is written then, it's written early, but it offers hope later for after exile is ended. Because you see, even after exile ended, even after Israel had been punished for their actions but now restored and things are back to normal and you're no longer in Babylonian captivity, even after exile had ended, there were folks who wondered, does God notice us? Does God see me? You know, it really feels like God has forgotten about me, like God just, you know, I'm praying, but it doesn't feel like God's hearing my prayers. I have faith, but it just feels like I'm, I'm in a dry spot. Yes, we know exile is over, but man, life is still tough. Man, it feels like God is absent. So that's what the second half of the book of Isaiah addresses, and that's where we'll be for the rest of the month of December, and that's where Isaiah has us this morning. And it's to that specific context, people accusing God of not paying attention, people accusing God of, of being absent, even though exile has ended, it's to that specific audience that Isaiah speaks this morning. And he responds to their concerns and to their doubts. And we hear him beginning in verse 12 saying, who has measured the waters in the hollow of their hands or marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Isaiah addresses these people who feel like God has forgotten about them, that God is absent, and, and he invites them into a thought experiment. And he says, I want you to think about everyone you know. I want you to think about all the people you know. You got them all in mind, good. Everyone you respect, everyone in, you admire, well, who among them has crafted or created a world that others inhabit? You know, have any of them held or measured oceans in their hands? Or said the sky will start here and it will end here? Has anyone you've ever met like weighed out a mountain in their hand and then plopped it along the earth? 
Isaiah wants to remind folks that all you see, everything that is, it's come into being because of God. The earth and everything in it, all there is, Isaiah says, it's God's masterpiece. It's his masterpiece. I don't know if you know this, but I.M. Pai uh, is widely recognized as one of the world's greatest architects, and we share a birthday. Uh, like me, he was born on April 26, except he was born in April 26, 1917, which means that today he is 101 years young. Now, Pi, he's this legendary, he is still alive, Paulette. I know, he's, yeah, uh, I had to check before this Sunday sermon. We had the same question. So he is still alive at 101. Uh, so I am Pi, he's this legendary architect known for making so many landmark buildings that you've seen before. So one is uh, the Pyramid at the Louvre Museum uh, he's responsible for, so many folks have seen this. Uh, he did the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum. He did the, the Bank of China Tower, which is credited with like changing the face of architecture in Hong Kong. Um, and maybe less notably, but no less significantly to me, I am Pi designed the Eskenazi Museum of Art at Indiana University, uh, my alma mater. And so there it is on IU's campus. I remember the first time I was there as a freshman at IU. I went with other members of my scholarship class. And it's this incredible building. It has no right angle, so 90-degree angles, right? Yes, I know some of you purists. Yes, the floor meets with the wall at 90 degrees. But every other angle is not a 90-degree angle. And it's fascinating. I mean, just the flow and the energy in that space. It is a beautiful piece of architecture. And I.M. Pai is just this, this unparalleled designer. He's on the, another level. I mean, he's on all the lists of the world's greatest living architects. But I imagine if I were to take Isaiah with me to the Eskenazi Museum, and if we drove into Bloomington and made our way down 7th Street and parked out in front and walked into the building, I imagine that Isaiah would say, Tyler, this is lovely. This is an impressive feat of construction. Yet, who has measured the water in the hollows of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span. Who has made a mountain from nothing in the sky by speaking it into being? Tyler, I am Pi is an amazing architect. And he has made architectural masterpieces. But there are other architects. There are others like him. But there is a God who is like no other who has made a masterpiece like no other. And I imagine if I took Isaiah with me without taking an inch away from Pi's, I mean, outstanding accomplishments, right? I imagine that he would say, this is stunning. And humans have done amazing things, but there's one who's more powerful, more imaginative, more creative, and who has more ability to put his creative genius into action. And this one, Isaiah would say, this God, he's created a masterpiece like none other made this world and everything in it, and the scope and scale and beauty of his accomplishment is incomparable. Um, in other words, there is no one like him. No one comes close. So you see, Isaiah, he wanted to give some, some personal details about God to the people of Israel in their moment of doubt, and this is the first detail. Isaiah wants them to realize that there's a God who made a masterpiece like no other, a masterpiece like no other. But that's not all God wants Israel to know. Uh, look with me now at verses 13 and 14. There Isaiah continues. He says, so who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? 
So now Isaiah is inviting us to consider something else. He's asking us to think about, hey, who, who was God's teacher? Who was God's tutor? Who instructed God in morality or art or justice or science? Who told God this is how the world works? Who gave him his reading assignments or graded his tests? So you think about it this way. We all have something in common. We've all had teachers, be them paid or unpaid, be them at a school or parents in our homes or a mentor in a field of work. We all have this in common. Whatever we know, we were taught. Whatever you know, you were taught. Everything you know, how to color, how to communicate, how to tie your shoes, how to cook, everything you know, you were taught, but God was not. In verses 13 through 14, Isaiah wants us to recognize that God, he he had no tutor. There is no instructor or teacher for God. What would they have taught him? Gravity? God's like, oh, I know, I made it. (laughs) Ethics? Yeah, I wrote those. Biology? I've seen cells before. Astronomy? Yeah, I made the stars. I mean, everything you know, you were taught, but God was not. He has a mind like no other. A mind like no other, infinite knowledge, boundless wisdom, unfathomable intellect. Isaiah wants us to see that God created a masterpiece like no other, this world that we live in, that he has a mind like no other that's unparalleled in all the universe. But there's one more personal detail about God that Isaiah wants us to see and understand. And we see it beginning in verse 15. He says there, behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket, They are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Isaiah says, in comparison to God, all the nations, everything, it's like a drop in the bucket. In fact, an entire region, Lebanon, which was known for like its great forests, you know, so we would say California, uh, Lebanon, known for its sturdy trees, could be turned into firewood, Isaiah says in this imaginative image, and still, 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 that fuel wouldn't be enough for an offering fire in comparison, an appropriate scale to how big and how grand God is. In comparison to God's sheer grandeur, Isaiah argues, the sum of all human accomplishment, it doesn't even come close. God exists at another magnitude of scale. He's exponentially bigger and greater, far more expansive than can be imagined. He exists at a magnitude like no other. You know, this October, uh, Forbes released their annual Forbes 400s list, uh, which catalogs the world's wealthiest People. And do any of you know who happened to land at number one in the Forbes 400? The Apple guy. That's close. We got one guess. Anyone know? The Amazon Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Tiffany, woo! I love it. Yeah, the, at the top of the Amazon 400 this year was Jeff Bezos, a chairman and CEO at Amazon. Now, Forbes reports that Bezos has a net worth of approximately $160 billion. $160 billion. So just think about that the next time you click confirm order uh, at Amazon. <laughs> so that is a whole lot of money. Now, according to Forbes, Bezos' next closest challenger, if we want to call them that, is Bill Gates from Microsoft. He has a net worth of $97 million. So that means, though, now, billion with the B, yep. So that means 
that Bezos, 160, Bill Gates, 97, that means that Jeff Bezos dwarfs the fortune of even Bill Gates by the sum of $63 billion, all right? So the difference between Bezos and Gates is more money than Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, has, and he's the fourth richest person on the list, right? So this is an astronomical difference. So I hope I haven't lost you in numbers. Here's what I'm trying to say. When it comes to personal wealth, Jeff Bezos currently occupies a category all his own. Uh, no one comes close. And yet, Isaiah says, there is one who's more grand, more marvelous, more magnificent, more remarkable, more incomparable, worthy of all that you can imagine, that all the sums of all the wealth and all the nations just comes up as a drop in a bucket. There's one who's in comparison to him, Isaiah says, makes the nations look like nothing. Uh, there's one who makes even the person on top of the Forbes 400 list look hopefully insignificant next to him. There is one who exists on such a scale and on such a magnitude that he is unlike any other. However you imagine God, Isaiah says, it is too small. However you've tried to comprehend him, Isaiah says, it, it, it's too narrow. God is unfathomable. He's incomparable. He's so large and grand and otherworldly. You can hardly wrap your mind around it, but I'm going to give you these personal details so that you can try. And so Isaiah, responding to people who feel like God is absent, who feel like God's forgotten about them, who feels like God has yet again turned his back. Even though we're out of exile now, he still has just neglected us. In response to those concerns, Isaiah gives three personal details about God to make it clear that God has created a masterpiece like no other, that he has this mind like no other, that he exists at a magnitude like no other. And after laying these details out, Isaiah reaches his dramatic conclusion, and he lands the plane by asking, so to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? An idol? Oh, a craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver change. And he was too impoverished for an offering. He chooses wood that won't rot. And he seeks out a skillful craftsman to try to set up this idol that will not move. But, but do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the world? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out heavens like a curtain and, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah reports and responds to those in ancient Israel who were growing frustrated with God, who were getting impatient with him, who wondered if he had abandoned them yet again. And he speaks to those who questioned if faithfulness to God was even a wise decision. You know, is this wasted effort? Is all this waiting and patience and diligence and prayer, is this just all for nothing? And he turns to those people who have responded with their, you know, they've got these doubts and they've responded by making little idols, little trinkets of gold if they could afford gold or wood if they were like the rest of us. You know, and he says, really, you think these statues compare to the God who created a masterpiece like no other and who has a mind like no other and who exists like a magnitude, exists at a magnitude like no other? You really think this little object that you made even comes close and do you really think this measures up? You are sorely mistaken, Isaiah says. And to the contrary, he insists, you need to be reminded of these personal details about God. 
You need to remember his history. You need to remember his brilliance. You need to remember that everything he had, just the fullness of everything dwells in him, his grandeur, his uniqueness. You need to see God as he truly is. And so I'm going to try to help you, says Isaiah. I'm going to recount these details about God's life, these personal details about who he is, so that that could adjust your response to him. Isaiah says all that he does about God with the desire that it will change Israel's response to God. I mean, in essence, Isaiah is saying this. He's saying, knowing this changes you. Knowing this about God, knowing the sheer size of God, scope of God, brilliance of God, magnitude of God, knowing this changes you. And Isaiah insists that recognizing God as he truly is is absolutely critical, particularly when we find ourselves exhausted, particularly when life gets difficult. It's of extreme importance in those moments when you feel like you have nothing left because in those moments, Isaiah knows, we will be tempted to trust in things we can see, tempted to turn to things we can comprehend, tempted to put our hope in something we've made and can measure to give our allegiance to something or someone who is easy for us to comprehend. But this is the wrong mood, says Isaiah. Instead of reaching for something understandable or tangible, Isaiah invites us to contemplate our unfathomable, incomparable God. He invites us again to remind ourselves of God's uniqueness and grandness and goodness. And so church, in the quietness of this moment, I've just got to ask, how do you see God? And how do you see God? Is it easy for you to recognize him in his grandness, his greatness, his goodness? Do you frequently see God as he truly is? I mean, just at a a category above all else, at a level so utterly different than all else? Um, Or have you, perhaps, like the people of Israel, or like me many times, have you made him something less? Have you forgotten God's brilliance? Have you minimized God's power? Have you reduced God's scale? Have you decreased his absolute amazingness? Have you made God less than he truly is? And you can be honest with yourself about the answer to that question. How do you see God? In this morning's text, Isaiah invites Israel to remember who God is, to remember that he is one with a masterpiece like no other, a mind like no other, who exists in a magnitude like no other. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He could have, but he doesn't. Instead, he continues saying, so why do you say, O Jacob, why do you speak, O Israel? So these are names used to refer to collective people. Why do you say, why do you speak? Hey, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah says, hey, 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 listen up. God is everlasting. He's the creator. He's tireless. He has matchless wisdom. And you know this. And then Isaiah keeps going and he says, he, this God who's like no other, he gives power to the faint. And to those who have no strength, he increases their strength. Isaiah says, the God of matchless power leverages his matchless power for the good of those who feel powerless. Then Isaiah says, look, look, even, even youths, Right? Even the young and the beautiful, right? even young men, uh, they shall faint and be weary. The young men fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord, don't miss this, 
Those who remain faithful, those who don't throw in the towel, those who don't turn away, those who refuse to be persuaded by critics that say God has forgotten about you, those that wait on the Lord, those who have a patient, enduring faith in God's goodness and plain for them, those who wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah makes a bold claim. He says, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel hopeless, when you feel like there's no gas left in the tank, and when you're tempted to believe that God has abandoned you, the best thing you can do is wait on the Lord. Stay faithful in the Lord. Keep having a patient, abiding confidence in the Lord because the God who exists at an unmatchable, unfathomable level of strength, the God who is the everlasting God, the God who does not grow tired or weary, that same God will strengthen you. That same God will strengthen you. Isaiah says, those who wait on the everlasting God will be upheld by the everlasting God. Those who trust in the God that never grows tired will find support and strength when they run out of gas. My friend Cassie has taught me a whole lot about what it means to wait on the Lord. Cassie and her husband Jason, they have three children, uh, Avram, August, and Rose. And wouldn't you know it, but Avram and I also share a birthday. Uh, Like me, he was born on April 26th, except he was born on April 26, 2010, which makes him eight years old. Come on, we still got it math downtown campus. Uh, so Abram, born again, April 26, uh, 2010. So Cassie's pregnancy is, you know, 2009, 2010. Uh, about 20 weeks into their pregnancy, Cassie found out um, that Abram's brain wasn't quite forming proper, properly. And there were all kinds of hypotheses along the way about what that was, but later they would discover after birth uh, that there are about 13 different malformations in his brain that has led to all sorts of delays in development, just about every developmental delay uh, that you can imagine. And so before he was born, uh, doctors told Cassie and Jason uh, that Abram would probably never be able to eat or breathe on his own, and they said if, if, if he survived the first few weeks, Uh, He would need care and assistance for the rest of his life. And so needless to say, really nothing has come easy for Avram. Indeed, Cassie describes kind of his life many times as an uphill battle. You know, just one more challenge after another challenge for this little buddy. And to be honest, I mean, there have been some high highs, but there have been a whole lot of very low lows. But in the middle of every struggle, Cassie's continued to trust in God. I would say that she has waited on the Lord to supply hope and strength and peace and endurance, and she's blogged along the way. So on February 23rd, 2012, and this was a season of life when Abram was experiencing like these long seizures, you know, we're talking like multiple hours, just can you imagine like seizure after seizure, and you had to protect his fragile head, and he was in this helmet. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons. But in April or February 23, 2012, Cassie wrote, I know with a deep knowing that everything will work out for good. I just know it. I know that no matter what, it, it will be good. I know that everything with Abram has worked out so far and will continue to do so. I know that there is a deep, deep, deep knowing, a deep, deep emphatic yes to all that the future holds in Christ. In church, that's what faith sounds like, deep trust in our good God. But she goes on and says, but sometimes it's the working out, it's the waiting that's just so awfully hard. Uh, There are still questions, 
still thoughts late in the night, still flashbacks of pain. Uh, the working out of all of it, it's tough. It's, it's stretching the clay. It's the waiting of the seed to sprout. It's the pruning of the weeds. It's a good hard, she writes, a strengthening hard. And so far, I know we're waiting. In the midst of all this hard difficulty, we are waiting for the working out of all things, for that day when God puts everything back together. And church, I do think this is what it looks like to wait on the Lord, uh, to trust over long periods of time, uh, to trust, contrary to even evidence that would suggest to the otherwise, to trust that our magnificent and comparable God, who is like no other, has not turned his back on us, even when we're out of steam. That even when the deck seems stacked against us, even when our tanks are empty, even when hope seems lost, he has not turned his back on us. That kind of confidence, that kind of trust, that's what it looks like to wait on the Lord. And in Isaiah 40, the prophet declares that God will come through for those who wait on him, who put their hope on him. He says God will come through, and God has come through. Because in the time between Isaiah speaking and giving this prophecy and this morning, something has happened. That same God who created this masterpiece like no other, who has a mind like no other, who exists in a magnitude like no other, that same God came to earth. And like no other God in the ancient pantheon, like no other God in ancient mythology, this God left glory to take on human limitation. And this was something brand new. When God became human, when he took on flesh, as John, his disciple, writes, when he walked on earth, he gave an invitation to you and to me that I think picks up right where Isaiah left off. Remember, it's Isaiah who said those who wait on the Lord, who keep trusting and remain faithful, that they will renew their strength, that they'll walk difficult lives of obedience with God and God will be strengthening them. That was Isaiah's promise. And 1,500 years later, Jesus, well, forget my math there. I know I did that wrong. Uh, BC, I did not account for BC all. But years later, Jesus, God come to earth, does one better. And he says to those who follow him in Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is life or light. Isaiah gave a promise and Jesus gave his life. And Jesus said years ago and says to us, even today, to all who are tired and weary, come to me. Come to me, to the one who came to earth and gave his life for you. Come to me if you are tired and overwhelmed, and I will give you rest. Let me carry your burden. Let me do the heavy lifting. Let me leverage my unsurpassable power and my unimaginable intellect and my sheer amazingness for your benefit. Jesus says, let me bear the weight of it all and let me guide you in life as it's meant to be lived. Jesus says, knowing me changes you and specifically, knowing me gives you rest. For I am gentle and humble. My yoke, it is easy and my burden is light. And so friends, when you learn new details, personal details in the story of another, it, it tends to change you changes the way you think about that person and the way you react to them. And in the same way, I believe, when you encounter personal details about the God who loves you, 
about the God who came to earth for you, about the God who gave his life for you, it enables you to wait and to rest in his presence. So today, may your vision of God be expanded. May you remember God's masterpiece like no other, God's mind like no other, and the fact that he exists at a magnitude like no other. And may that knowledge of him inform your response to him. May you trust that he hasn't given up on you, but does notice you. And may we together wait with hope and patience and trust and say yes to Jesus' invitation to intimacy, to know him and to rest in him and to trust him. All right, may we do that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you have invited us to rest in you. And you know how tiring, difficult life on this earth can be because you left heaven and lived it. And so in whatever challenges we're facing, in whatever difficulties are standing in our path, and whatever obstacles seem insurmountable to us, Lord, instead of man, thinking that you don't have the power, that you don't care, that you're not noticing, that you're not around, instead of thinking all the things we so easily think, Lord, may, be we, may we be reminded of your greatness and grandeur. May we have a fresh image and glimpse today, Lord, of how big and glorious and awesome and good you are. And may that instead, Lord, motivate us to reach out to you, to take you up on your invitation to rest, to ask you to carry our burdens with us and for us, to reach out for help in this church, Lord. May we not think that we need to turn to other things to dull the pain or other things to help us cope and get through, but instead recognize that you have given us an invitation to intimacy and to rest, and that with your sheer power and magnitude, you're able to deliver on your promises like no one else. May we be people who take you up on that invitation even today, Lord. We ask for your help in this. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.